right, everybody, welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. If you're visiting, uh, I'd love to meet you after the service. I'm so glad that you chose to spend some time this weekend uh, worshiping God. So welcome to Remnant. Um, I have uh, an announcement I want to make that is actually pretty cool. Um, our church was challenged with raising money for taxes, $50,000, and we had to come up with it in three weeks. And we hit that target Thursday afternoon. It was due on Friday. So that's fantastic. So praise God. It was incredible to watch that happen. So Bill's going to come up and tell us a little bit more about that. And then I'll start. Wow. Um, you know, about a month ago, uh, a little bit longer than that, we uh, had been aware that some things had happened in the past and we needed to take care of it. So as a church and the partners, we all prayed about it. We had a meeting and, and uh, we, we as the elders decided that the right thing to do is we need to take care of that. And But we need some money. And uh, we prayed about it. And uh, wow, we raised... Uh, over $51,000 in four weeks from you guys. Um, you know, we, we, we knew that God had it uh, and God used you to be a part of that and, and just, uh, wow, that's a great answer prayer and God's, God's good and God's alive and he's doing stuff. So, uh, you know, just uh, praise God for that and Man, it just, uh, it's exciting. So today, all I just wanted, I want to do this morning is, I just want to pray and praise God for that. So kid, uh, let's just take a minute and pray. Thank you. God, thank you. And we never doubted you, Lord. And I thank you for every person in this room and people that are home and watching the testimony, Lord, that you allowed us to be part of. Because you own every cow on every hill and you own the hill they stand on and you own every piece of money. And we just thank you for that, Lord. Or the testimony that we got to do, to share, to pay, to do the things, Lord, is all because of you. And Lord, I just thank you for these people. I thank you for allowing us to be obedient, to do what we needed to do. So, Lord, it's a testimony to you how much you love us, how much you can do for us, and just continue to help our unbelief. Lord, we just love you. I thank you for this church. I thank you for all you do. And all God's people said, Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you. All right, if you ever want to talk to somebody that's passionate about our church, just hunt down Bill and uh, watch what happens. We have great elders, and they, they work so hard behind the scenes and don't really get near the acknowledgement that they deserve. So keep our elders and pastors in prayer. Um, we are in a series, uh, Second Peter, and, and Peter has been talking about false teachers. He's been warning about false teachers that are coming. We're now all the way, we're in week eight, we're all the way to chapter two. And, and what he's saying is, he says, look, um, I've talked about who I am. I've talked about who the church is. I've talked about who you are. 
now it's time for me to tell you how you're going to recognize false teachers. And so in this passage, Peter is now going to turn to, okay, look, I've warned you they're coming. Now let's talk about what they'll look like when they get here. Okay. Now, interesting that he, um, he doesn't talk a lot about their teaching. He doesn't talk a lot about, okay, now this is how you're going to recognize because they're going to say certain things. He does some of that, but most of what he's going to share with us is how they live their lives, how they behave, how, how you'll notice in their lives. So it's interesting because Peter has been warning us and Jesus warned us that these teachers, these false teachers would come into the church, they would look like sheep, but they wolves and they would destroy the flock. Have you ever watched a wolf actually eat a sheep? It's pretty disgusting when you think about it. Exactly. The sheep is absolutely helpless. The attack is swift. The damage is immediate. The outcome is certain. Jesus could have used any image he wanted to to describe to you the damage that a false teacher does to a church. This is the one he chose. Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. His brother Jude would later write... For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Many pastors have the experience of trying to stop a false teacher who was sent by Satan to destroy the church. They all describe the event as a whirlwind blitzkrieg attack on the church. The leaders were not totally prepared for what was happening because it was so swift. Many in just two weeks were thinking, how did we get here? What just happened to our church? Pastors and leaders struggled to put brakes on what was happening because the congregation loved what was being said to them. In those moments, they described it like the church was going on a roller coaster and all the leaders could do was hold on. Most report that they were honestly stunned that the church even survived the attack. In hindsight, these churches often report that the same false teacher has impacted church after church after church, moving from place to place, leaving a wake of broken relationships and broken churches in their past. The churches that do survive are often shells of what they had been previously. It is a damaging thing. These attacks by Satan on Jesus' church are commonplace. And they attack the very foundation of the church, the truth that the apostles guard and protect. Peter knew that that damage could result. He knew it was like a ravenous wolf. He knew they could destroy everything the apostles had worked for. So in his final letter before his death, as he's looking back over his life, he tells the church, you have to read the letter. And he tells us today, you got to pay attention to the letter. And as we enter the, the second chapter of 2 Peter, Peter now finally turns to the nature of these false teachers. He says, look, they're coming, but in today's message, Peter's going to show us how to recognize them. 
False teaching comes in many different expressions and by numerous approaches. And false teachers can be gifted and attracted people. But how do we recognize them? In this one chapter, in just 22 verses, Peter's going to give us 24 characteristics of a false teacher. For 2 Peter verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Peter's been talking about the prophets of the past. He spoke of how they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote God's truth. Now Peter's warning there's going to be false teachers who are carried along by their own spirit and their own desires as they write and teach lies to people. Now looking back historically, Peter tells them it's been obvious some of those who profess to be prophets of God were not speaking God's words. They deceived people in God's name. And Peter says, just like those false prophets, there's going to be false teachers. Now notice carefully what he says. We get our first characteristic of a false teacher. They will secretly bring in heresies. Heresy means anything contrary to the truth of God's Word. They don't come up and go, hey, I'm a false teacher. I've got my own Bible. I've rewritten it. Here it is. That's not how they present themselves. They secretly bring in false teaching. And the focus here is not so much that they claim to be sent by God when they're not, or that they claim to have the office of a teacher when they don't. But what's brought up here is that they've been teaching ideas and doctrines that are wrong. Their teaching is not based on any revelation through the Holy Spirit. It's not from God. It comes from their own mind, and it's their own invention. And Peter states this as a fact not as a possibility. They were among you. Peter tells us that we're not going to show up and announce that they're professing truth is actually a well-crafted lie. It isn't that they're teaching secret, but the deceptive nature of their teaching is secret. The second characteristic we learn in this verse, they will deny the master who bought them. Jesus paid the price for everybody. He went to the cross and He died for every human that ever lived. He bought everybody. Many people say no thanks. But He paid the price for them. And false teachers will deny what Jesus did. Now remember who's speaking here. This is Peter. Peter knows something about denying Jesus. What he's doing is he's warning you, don't do what I did. These people will teach falsely. Even a person who appears to be a godly person with a godly walk and with, says they have a relationship with Jesus Christ can still bring in destructive heresy. Often it's the people who appear good who do the most damage. Just remember, Judas walked with Jesus for three years. His heart was never with Jesus. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, not one disciple stood up and said, I know it's Judas. <laughs> they could not tell. And neither can we. We have to be careful. Verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. 
This reminds us that false teachers are probably going to be po very popular. Just because something succeeds in attracting a crowd doesn't mean it's from God. We know that God's work will always bear fruit, but the devil's work can bear people. The most distressing aspect of false teachers is not just that they're among you. Teachers have always been among Christians. The most distressing fact is that many people will follow their destructive heresies. <coughs> Peter uses the word here, sensuality. They will literally seduce you by telling you what you want to hear. It'll be easy to become seduced because they're usually pretty slick. Charming personalities, engaging charm. They'll share with you new knowledge that often allows you to do what you always wanted to do. But that you thought God called a sin. And now they're telling you, you can be and do who you want to be and do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it. <coughs> they will twist what you know to get you what you want. They will seduce you spiritually. They will blaspheme. When false teachers are at work and crowds are following them, truth is blasphemed. God's name and honor are disgraced. They're destructive. They, they, they lead those who are following them to become immoral. And notice the irony here. The false teachers taught that there would be no final judgment. Remember, that's what the Gnostics are teaching. There is no judgment for your sin because it has nothing to do with what you do in your body. But in reality, their teaching is bringing the very judgment they say doesn't happen. Verse 3, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. The third characteristic to notice a fake teacher, they will exploit you with false words. They will use you to fund themselves. The word exploit here in Greek means to make merchandise of you. The Greek word is our root word emporium which denotes the business of buying and selling. False teachers exploit people. They use you for their purposes. They trade and sell you with each other in order to promote themselves. One way they do this is with false words. They will tell you stories and accounts that have no factual basis, but are just the result of their clever imagination. What's being asserted here that it's not the apostles and Christian teachers who are making up fairy tales, but these false teachers themselves. Remember, they're accusing Peter of, you're making up myths, you're telling stories. No, actually, they're the ones doing that. If we skip down to verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. The fourth characteristic of a false teacher is that they have a lust of the flesh. What it really means is they do what they want to do. They, they pursue their own passions. They don't pursue God's passion. They pursue their own. Their spirit is contrary. False teachers do not walk in the spirit. They live in the lust of their flesh. What they want is important. There's no restraint. Compare that to what Paul says the way true followers should walk. 
But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now remember, the Gnostics have been teaching that what you do in your flesh has nothing to do with your spiritual life. That you can do anything you want on earth, it doesn't affect your spirit. That you're saved by this special knowledge that only they have and only they can impart to you. Now flesh here in this passage is not just a sexual thing. It's everything you do with your body. You deserve this. You want this. You decide to do this. False teachers are pursuing their own desires in a lustful, sensual way. They live life unrestrained. Fifth characteristic in this verse, they despise authority. A basic problem of sin, sin at its nature, is us deciding not to do what God tells us to do. False teachers despise the authority of God and they refuse to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They prefer to establish themselves as their authority. They don't want to be under the authority of elders. They don't want to be under the authority of a church. They want to be on their own where they can go from place to place and do their damage without accountability. They become popular quickly. And once they have an influential base of followers, they use that power to attack the authority that's in place. So what they'll do is they'll come into a church and they'll start gossiping. And they'll start sharing rumors. And they'll start turning people against each other. And once they develop a group of people that they believe are strong enough to follow them, then they'll use those people and themselves to attack the church authority. Very effective at it. Peter continues, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Our sixth trait is they're bold. These people are bold. They don't back down. They infiltrate a church body. They move quickly into leadership. They try to promote themselves up the chain, almost demanding their position. They step on people around them and they use everybody for their own purposes. They know what they want. They want influence and they want power and they want a voice. And they essentially try to take it. They're bold, they're presumptuous, and they're self-imposing. And they know that most church leaders need help, need people who are willing to teach, need people who will volunteer, and need people who appear to be on fire for God, and appear to be charming, and appear to be personable. And they play on that. Seventh trait, self-will. Self-will means to be self-pleasing or strong in your own will. In other words, they always want their own way. And you should want their way. They have many reasons why things have to be done their way. They have to be in control of everything that happens within the church. They have to be in control of whatever teaching they're doing. Our eighth trait, they speak evil of those who truly follow Christ. They are so arrogant that they're not afraid to speak evil of church leaders or pastors. But Peter says they'll even blaspheme glorious ones. Apostles, angels, prophets, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God Himself. Nobody's off off their list. They feel that they are actually better than everybody. In truth, if it was translated, they think they're God. Now look at how Paul contrasts the way these false teachers think about themselves and the way a true believer should think about themselves. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, 
but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Everything about Jesus is humility. Everything about Jesus is service. Peter continues, But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, Peter's not holding back, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. The ninth clue, they will speak evil of things they do not understand. What do they not understand? Spiritual things. They're like brute beasts, rational animals. They abuse, they sneer, they scoff at things they don't understand. He's referring to the fact that they're living in the flesh so they can't understand the things of the Spirit. Yet they mock and they talk down and they speak evil of things that the Spirit is doing within the church or within the congregation, which usually is revealing to people that they're a false teacher. Verse 13, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deception while they feast with you. The tenth clue, they revel in the daytime and they count it pleasurable. What does that mean? Let me give it to you a way they all understand. They look one way on Sunday, totally different the rest of the week. They revel in the daytime. They find pleasure and joy and excitement in doing the things of the flesh when they're not in front of you looking like they're very holy on Sundays. They revel in the flesh. The 11th clue, their spots and blemishes, they stand out from people who are truly following God. If you want to see the spots and blemishes of somebody spiritually, put them next to somebody who's spiritual. (laughs) Compare this to what Paul says in Ephesians. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The point that Peter's trying to make is, these teachers, when you really look at them, when you really examine them, you see things in them. The Spirit reveals things to you about them. They have blemishes. Twelfth clue in these verses, they take pleasure in revealing their deceptions. They love their own teaching. They love their own teaching. They are proud at the ease at which they can deceive people. They love to count the number of their followers. They're constantly telling you how many people they baptized, how many people they converted, what size the congregation was, how many people just followed them because they're the greatest person on earth. They always overstate their influence. They love their truth. They don't understand why everybody doesn't love their truth. Thirteenth clue. They do all of this while eating with you. To eat with somebody in the first century didn't mean you just sat down and ate. You only ate with people that you were in relationship with. You only ate with people who eating with them was a way of saying, we're good. We're together. It's okay. Everything's good between us. We're solid. We're in a place of shalom, peace. You did not eat with somebody who you were not at peace with. 
These people try to fit in. They're deceptive, they're engaging, they're high-minded of themselves, and they'll sit down and eat with you. Paul says, now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, revel, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a person. So what Paul says is, look, if somebody's this way, if they're in sin, don't eat with them because it, it endorses what they're doing. It says that what they're doing is okay. Peter says, these guys sit down and eat with you. They're going to try to become part of the body. They're going to come from within. Remember, they're going to look like sheep, but they're wolves. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children they are. Fourteenth clue, they have eyes full of adultery. Their eyes are on adultery. What he's talking about here is not just sexual. He's talking about spiritual adultery. Their eyes are on pulling you away from Jesus. You're in a relationship with Jesus. We've talked before about how that's a marriage. It's a covenant. We're in relationship. The church is the bride. Jesus is the groom. We're committed to each other. And what Satan says is, I'm going to send a false teacher in, and we're going to try to destroy this relationship. <coughs> he or she use people for their own gratification, for their own purposes. They take gratification in stealing people from Christ. It's what Satan loves to do. Let me rip up your relationship with Christ. Let me lure you away from Jesus. Fifteenth clue, they never stop sinning. They're insatiable when it comes to sin. John says it this way, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desire of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. These people have no focus on the things of God. They're focusing on their own agenda, their own purpose. They're focusing on gaining influence, on undercutting authority. They're focusing on all kinds of things. And they're obvious when you begin to understand what God is warning you about. Sixteenth clue. They entice unstable souls. They will delude and lead away people who don't know the truth for themselves. I tell you every week, you have to know what's in the Bible. You have to know the truth for yourself or you will be deceived. Amen. And everything I preach, you need to go back to Scripture and look at it and make sure it's right or you could be deceived. Not on purpose, I don't think, but it's possible. Okay, so the point is, is that if you have an unstable soul, if you haven't read the Bible, if you don't understand what it says, you're going to be easily enticed by these slick people because they're going to tell you what you want to hear. And you're not going to recognize it as false. They will lead away unstable soul. They will deceive people who are new to the faith, who aren't being protected by those of us that are more mature in the faith. Or those who have been pretending to be mature in the faith will be easily deceived because they don't know the truth. Seventeenth clue, they have hearts trained in greed. It literally means they have trained their hearts continuously to seek out and covet that which belongs to somebody else. The Greek word here is an interesting one. It's one that implies a trained athlete in the Olympics. Well, what he's saying is here, look, these people have been training for years. 
They've been practicing this long before they got to you. They've been figuring out how to fund themselves. They've been figuring out how to get money. They've been figuring out how to come into a congregation. They understand how to, how to lead people away. They are Satan's trained assassins. They've been practicing. They have fine-tuned their deception like an Olympic runner has perfected their form. They are perfectly expert in the art of seduction, fraud, and deception. They are equipped, but not for ministry. They're equipped for selfish gain. We all train our hearts in something, and we're either training our hearts in the things of God or the things of Satan. The 18th clue, God tells us they are accursed children. These false teachers who lead other people astray have actually been condemned from a long time ago. They're living under a curse and they don't even know it. Verse 15, forsaking the right way they've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam and the son of Beor who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. It's one of my favorite verses, Numbers 22. I'll just go on the side here. The first time I preached, I was scared to death. And so I got up and I told the church, some of you may have been there, I told the church, I said, look, I have no business being up here. I'm freaking out, I don't really know what to say. But I was looking through God's Word and I came across this passage where God spoke through an ass. <laughs> so I figure if He can do that, He can speak through me. So every time I read Numbers 22, I remember that God spoke through a donkey. But see, Balaam was guilty of one of the greatest sins, leading others to sin for the sake of his own gain. That's why Peter brings him up. He was leading others to sin to meet his own needs. And God had to send a donkey to talk to him because he would not listen to God. He continues, They are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness and reserved. He says, look, they're like a well without water. They're like a spring that has dried up. If you're thirsty and you get to a spring that dries up, when you really need to know the truth, you get to these people, they're like a dry spring. They cannot help you. They cannot quench your thirst. The only thing they can do is help you die. That's what he's saying. They've lost their function. They are false teachers. They do not quench your spiritual thirst. What will happen is when you listen to them, you'll go, wow, I'm still thirsty. And they're going to go, what I, what I was great, right? <laughs> 21st reason. They're only a sprinkle of the true deal. False teachers, he says, they're like empty clouds. They should have rain in them. They should be full of rain. They should bring refreshment. They should bring life. But they're empty clouds. And they're just being drifted around like a storm. But they never deliver on anything that you need. They have nothing to offer and they have no control of where they're going. 22nd, they speak great swelling words of emptiness. I've listened to false teachers preach. They can go on for 60 minutes and say nothing. <laughs> I at least say something once in a while. But their words are incredible. Their stories are engaging. 
You enjoy it the whole time because they're telling you what you want to hear. It's a fun place to be. It's entertaining. But at the end, you're going, now what was it that we were supposed to do with this? <laughs> False teachers cannot bring you to the truth. They can't. They can only tell you their own earthly wisdom. Beautiful vocabulary. Totally fluent. To use a contemporary expression, Peter's saying, look, they're just bags of wind. They're just talking. It has no substance. They speak great swelling words of emptiness. They're just like the crowds with Jesus. They, they wanted the bread he offered, but they didn't want him. That's a false teacher. Verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Number 23, they say what people want to hear. This is Peter's greatest concern, his biggest fear, and it should be one of our biggest fears. He says, look, they are barren and unfruitful. They're going to have flowery words. They're going to make a lot of promises. They're going to tell you what you want to hear. They're going to attempt to seduce you. You don't seduce somebody by telling them what they don't want to hear. They're going to tell you things that you've always wanted somebody to tell you that you can keep doing what you're doing so that you can still be a follower of Christ and stay in whatever relationship or do whatever sin. They are going to entice you to follow themselves instead of the truth of God. They are false teachers. They don't teach the truth. They'll try to allure you because every one of us has things we want to hear. Jesus says they'll tell them what their itching ears want to hear. You can fill up a church telling people what they want to hear. You can empty a church telling them what God wants them to hear. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. It brings us to number 24. They claim to be free. They claim to have the way of freedom, but they're imprisoned by their own deceit. Freedom isn't found in what Jesus can give us. Freedom is only found in Jesus himself. Sin always promises what it can't deliver. Sin always looks better than it really is. It promises us liberty and freedom. It's so enticing. And yet, all it brings is slavery. Peter says, look, whatever overcomes you, whatever you submit yourself to, that's what you're going to worship. That is what you're going to follow. And that's what's going to control you. You're either going to be controlled by God and his truth, or you're going to be controlled by Satan and his lies. You are either a slave to sin, or you are a slave of Jesus, committed not to sin. So that we have it pretty quick. 24 things we should look for. These people should be obvious, right? Not so easy, huh? I mean, in retrospect, you can see the damage. You can see what happens. But as it's happening, it's hard to know. And here's the other thing. The church in general, we're to protect you from this. We're the shepherds of the flock. We're supposed to protect you from the wolves. The problem is a lot of this stuff comes to you through the Internet. It comes to you through television. We're not there to help share with you. So guess what you got to do? 
You have to know the truth for yourself. The Bible says that my job, other than to preach the truth in season and out of season, is to equip the saints for ministry. That's you. My job is to teach you so you can teach yourself, so that you can learn, so that you can go out in the world and not be deceived. So what are we supposed to do with this? Great, it's a list. Be on guard. It's not enough. What do we do with this? You see, I believe our church is a prime target for a false teacher to come in and try to destroy us. God has blessed this little church in ways I have a hard time even talking about. It's so incredible. We are committed as leaders to always do the right thing. And God rewarded us with an incredible gift after we decided we have to do the right thing. God gave us this amazing building brought churches together for a purpose and a mission. We reach those others have overlooked. We focus on welcoming everybody into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And most importantly, we teach the truth straight up, no apologies, no alterations, and Satan hates that. Amen. So how do we protect God's house? How do we as a church protect God's house? Well, here's some of the steps the elders have taken to protect us. You can't have a leadership role at Remnant until you've been a partner for at least a year and are well known by many people. Most false teachers will not stay in a church that long. If they can't gain influence, if they can't gain a position of authority or teaching, they will leave and go somewhere else. We want to know who you are. We want to know your life. We want to know your story. Before we allow you to influence other people in our church, we want to know you. People who hold teaching rows at Remnant do not do so alone. We make sure that there are mature believers in the room every time something's taught under the umbrella of Remnant. We make sure that we know who the teachers are, that we've seen their life, that we've examined them, that other people know them, that they can account for them. The pulpit here is guarded almost like no other pulpit. Ed and I don't just hand over the teaching and the awesome privilege of speaking to you every week unless we're absolutely sure the person standing up here is representing the truth of God. Amen. Throughout the church, we are constantly watching what's being taught, who's teaching it, and we're open for anybody to bring us any concerns they have. Several times a month, we screen books. We look at teaching materials sent to those by people in the church that want to know if it's a good idea for them to study this or follow this because they want to stay under the protective umbrella of their elders. We try to provide ample opportunities for you to learn under Remnant. Classes taught by our pastors, Ed's class on Sunday morning. I'm getting ready to start launching online teaching that you'll be able to come to. Our Facebook site. Another way we all protect this church is to guard ourselves against ignorance. We do our very best to encourage you to know the Word of God for yourself and to challenge everything we teach with Scripture. If you know the Word of God yourself, it's very hard for Satan to deceive you. When people come in with puffed up stories about themselves and you hear wisdom from fools, when you know the word, it is obvious to you that something's wrong and we all benefit from your knowledge of the word. 
as you learn the Word more and more, you help us protect each other. Most importantly, our church leaders stay awake, alert, and prayed up. Because it's ultimately God who's going to protect His church from false teachers. But as individuals, we have to play our role too. First, we need to be praying for discernment. We need to pray for our leaders and we need to trust that God is working through them. We need to be on guard for gossip and shut it down. Confront it every time. Somebody comes up to you in the church and says, hey, have you heard about so-and-so? Say, stop. Let's get so-and-so and talk about it. Why? Because false teachers use gossip to build influence to destroy the church. They tell you what you want to hear. They feed into your insecurities. It's an attack from Satan himself. Second, we need to know the word for ourselves. It's very hard to deceive a mature believer. If you're spending time with God every day, if you're listening to the Holy Spirit every day, if you're praying every day, if you're in the Word every day, you will hear the Spirit in you rising up saying, stop it. This is not of God. But if you're not in that and you don't know what the Spirit sounds like and you're not used to hearing that, you're going to be deceived. We all need to understand there are no new revelations that haven't been already seen in the Bible over 2,000 years of people studying them under the guidance of not themselves, but the Holy Spirit. It has been fully revealed, past tense, done. It's there. If someone shows you a new truth, be very, very careful. When you hear a teacher of the Word of God... You need to know how to evaluate them. Here's some clues. These are just my opinions. And when I sit down, I hear somebody teaching. This is what runs through my mind. What does the teacher say about Jesus? Listen specifically for Jesus, for the Holy Spirit, not just God in general, not just a higher power. Do they say Jesus is equal with God? Do they validate the power, role, truth, and Godhead of the Holy Spirit? Do they downplay Jesus' crucifixion and His resurrection? Do they downplay His humanity or His deity? Listen for those things. If you get a chance to meet them and interview them, the first question you should ask them. If you ever, by any wild imagination, you ever end up in another church? First thing to ask the pastor, tell me about your conversion. Tell me about your conversion. Listen to what they say. What are you listening for? Brokenness, humility, repentance, confession, conviction, gratitude, grace. Then ask them, how has your life changed since you met Jesus? A false teacher will not be able to answer that question because they've never had the experience. They'll tell you, oh, I prayed to God and I know He saved me. No, that's not how it works. There's brokenness. There's repentance. There's awareness of your sins. There's confession of your sins. And there's a crying out from that canyon for God's truth because you've got to be rescued. Second thing, run through the fruit of the Spirit in your mind and ask Him if you see it. Mature believers are the only ones that should be teaching, right? 
So when you look at their lives, do you see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control, and particularly focus on self-control? False teachers really, really struggle with self-control. Next thing you should ask as they're teaching, how is scripture being used? Do they teach exegetically? Let me explain what that means. There's two ways I could get up here and preach. Well, there's probably a lot of ways. One way is I show you the scripture and then we talk about what it means. That's what we're doing today. Exegetical, that's called. The scripture leads. The scripture goes up on the screen. We talk about what it means. Another way is I come up with what I want you to hear. And then I go dig through the Bible, find some scriptures to throw up an act like that supports what I want you to do. Okay. Why do we teach exegetically? Why do we tend to go through book by book by book? Why do we do that? Because it forces us to let the Spirit of God lead us through His Word where all the power is. As a pastor, I am told to preach the Word in season and out of season, not my opinions, not my ideas. We start with the Word. I try to help you understand the historical context, all those kind of things. But the power of anything we do up here is because of the words on the screen, not my words. How do they use Scripture? If you took out everything they said and just looked from Scripture to Scripture from Scripture of the sermon, could you tell the story? It's a great thing to do. If you get a chance, look at, the, look at the text of what they're teaching. Take out every word that's not Scripture and ask yourself if there's a logical flow from Scripture to Scripture to make the point that they said they were going to make at the top. Because otherwise, they're making the point, not God. Are they willing to share with you the material so you can study it and critique it and ask questions? How long do they teach before a scripture goes up or somebody says the name Jesus? There are people who preach for longer than me, imagine. And don't mention Jesus once. When they do present Scripture, are they using mental gymnastics to try to show you what it says? Or can they just trust that the Scriptures will speak for themselves? When they are done, was the sermon about them or about Jesus? Did they acknowledge at any point during their teaching that they too struggle? Are they in it with you? Do they recognize they fall short of God's promises? Or do they try to present themselves as perfect? Does the teacher teach the full gospel? They may say nice statements like God loves you or God wants you to feed the hungry or God wants you to be wealthy. The gospel. Paul warns in Galatians 1.7, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. There's only one thing to teach up here. It's every week. It's Jesus and the gospel. No one has the right to change the message that God gave us. Paul says in Galatians, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Do they teach the truth in season and out of season? Are they willing to let the Holy Spirit step on toes? Or do they water down the message to keep everybody happy and the coffers full and the seats fill? If you listen to a teacher of God's Word and you don't at times feel very convicted, they haven't preached the Word of God. Are they trying to sell you something or get you to give money? False teachers are always driven by greed. 
They want you to buy their books, fund their ministry, reallocate church funds for their own personal benefit. They look to the church for funding. They go around behind the scenes without church authority or leadership knowing about it and asking people for resources. They don't submit to the church's financial authority, their budgeting, their spending restrictions. They work around every accountability that's ever put in their life, and they do it with charm. They make you want to help them. Next one is the person teaching. Do they have a seminary or Bible college degree? This gets passed off in today's culture, which is very surprising. But I think it's very important. Some people say, well, just get up there and say whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to say. It's a dangerous precedent. Our job is to teach the truth, to understand Scripture, to understand the cultural, historical, and interpretive issues of the Scriptures, to understand the conflict within Scripture, to understand what God's trying to say, to know what's happening in the Greek and the Hebrew and the Aramaic. What it tells you if somebody has a degree is that they've at least taken their teaching seriously enough to devote time to presenting themselves somewhere where they can learn. It also means they were under the learning structure of a seminary, and seminaries only graduate people who are qualified to be ordained in ministry and take the call of God. The school validates that person's character and integrity. It doesn't mean they can't be a false teacher. But if you've gone through four years, or in my case, many more, just because it took me forever, if, you, if you've gone through that amount of training, that amount of time, because you want to make sure you teach it right, you're going to learn very quickly not to get up on stage and just throw things out for people to accept. Look and see where they trained. Find out what kind of degree they have. You would do that with a doctor. You would do that with an attorney. Are you actually trained to do what you're supposed to be doing? The responsibility and warning given in Scripture to those who teach the Word is daunting. It is unbelievable. When you read it, you wonder why anybody would ever, ever try to teach the Word. If we teach falsely, we are eternally condemned. I don't want to know what that means. I can't imagine taking the responsibility of preaching from the pulpit unless I was specifically trained to do it and was confident that I knew to the best of my ability what the words mean and how to help you understand them. And I'll still get it wrong. Are they submitting to the leadership of the lead pastor? False teachers always try to undermine the shepherd of the flock. They're subtle and they do it through innuendos and gossip. They cast doubt on the intentions or qualifications of the people God has ordained for ministry and called to lead the flock. False teachers find ways to avoid spiritual accountability for themselves, but they try to destroy it when they come into a church. How long has that teacher been in one place? Under the authority of the same people and under the watchful eye of other believers. False teachers are like Satan's commandos. They attack and leave. They don't stay long. If they can't get influence, they move on. If they do get influence, they do their damage quickly and they get out. They always have reasons why you can't call their references. They always have reasons why they had to leave. And usually it was some holy reason. And it makes everybody wonder what really happened. But they're such a good person. Of course, who would let them go? Does the teacher exhibit the qualities of a follower of Jesus? Look at their life. Look at their marriage. Look at their parenting. Look at their friends. Look at their integrity in the community. 
Look at how they interact with other people. Do they, by the way they live their lives, inspire you to change yours? Not by what they say, but by who God has made them to be. Finally, as you sit under the teaching on multiple occasions, do they inspire you to make changes in your life? And if the answer is yes, don't stop there. Why? Why does that teacher inspire you to change something in your life? You see, because they can wow you with what you want to hear. They can challenge you with the truth that's their truth. But the question is, did they challenge you with a truth you didn't want to hear? You see, here's what we forget. Even as saved followers of Jesus, we have a flesh nature. We want to keep doing what we want to do. We want Jesus and we want our life. We want Jesus and we want our drug. We got Jesus, we want our alcohol. We got Jesus, we want our materialism. We want Jesus, but we want to keep lying. We want to keep manipulating. So we have a part of us that wants to do what God says we're not to do. We're still in the flesh. If you keep going to church and you never feel challenged over here on the spiritual side to change, there's a good chance you're not hearing the truth of God's Word. Your, your flesh tendency is always against God's Word. So God's truth, when it's presented, is almost always, always, always going to convict you. You're not going to want to do it, in other words. You're going to have to stop doing what you want to do and surrender to what Jesus tells you to do. That's called spiritual growth. So you are not going to like what true teachers teach you. There's going to be part of you that naturally recoils to it because you don't really want to hear that. You, you, you want to stay over here doing it your way and then just have Jesus when salvation comes. Why do you want to change? Do you want to change because that teacher has showed you a new truth that will make you more like Jesus and you want to honor Him and glorify Him so you say no to yourself and yes to Jesus? Or did that teacher just tell you what you wanted to hear and you're just going to stay over here and say, praise God, I get to keep doing what I've been doing? False teachers are everywhere. Their platform is greater now than it's ever been. They can infiltrate social media, the web, they can do anything. Just because they have a presence on the web and followers doesn't mean they're teaching the truth. So Peter gives us 24 characteristics to watch for. And I've given us a few more things to think about. False teachers are coming. They will come to remnant. And Peter tells us that we must, must be ready. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you warn us ahead of time of things that we need to know. Thank you that you instill in us a resolve to hold on to your truth, to stand with the apostles on the wall that is your church and guard against the attacks that come at the foundation. Help us, God, to know your truth. Help us, God, to explore your truth. Help us, God, to be on guard. Help us, God, to protect each other from false teachers. Thank you for Peter's words. Thank you for his warnings. Help us, God, to take what we've learned today and apply it. Please, God, don't leave us where we're at. 
whatever our next step is to get closer to you, God, would you give us the power and the desire to do it? And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.